Tim, do you remember the year of the shark? Not specifically, but I remember that there was a period several years ago when the media went crazy over shark attacks. That might have even given birth to the Discovery Channel's Shark Week series, or maybe even Sharknado. Why? What, what makes you think about that? Why, why do you ask, Kurt? Well, one of our recent guests at our Behavior Groups meetup was Jonathan Mann, who has held leadership positions in user experience at PayPal and Target Corporations. But he started his talk about how to apply behavioral science to designing good user experience with a story about the year of the shark. Yeah, that was a good talk. Jonathan shared a bunch of great insights into the application of some common behavioral science terms like social proof and present bias. But he also introduced us to some very cool effects with his presentation, like the visual depiction effect or the auditory price perception effect and the discount distance congruity effect, which happened to be identified by one of my colleagues and friends, Patricia Norberg. Jonathan had some great examples that he shared with us that night, and I think we should talk through some of them. Absolutely. Uh, But I want to hear about the year of the shark. Well, first, shouldn't we tell people what they're listening to? (laughs) Oh, okay. That, That sounds good. I'm Kurt Nelson, and welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast where Tim and I try to understand the reasons for why we do what we do and why sharks matter. (laughs) And I'm Tim Houlihan, and Kurt and I have published more than 70 episodes in the past year and a half, and our goal is to reach people who are interested in applying behavioral science to their work and life. And we are trying to expand our community to those people who are interested in learning more about behavioral science. So if you have a friend or a coworker who you think might be interested, please forward a copy of this episode to them. Or you can check us out at our website, www.behavioralgrooves.com. Okay, Kurt, can we talk about the year of the shark now? I think we could. But let's hear how Jonathan teased this up. I want to talk to you about shark attacks. So, um, I don't know, I see a lot of very young people here, so you might not remember this, but if you think back to 2001, there was um, a lot of coverage about the fact that there were a few very unfortunate and tragic shark attacks in the United States. So there was breathless media coverage about these shark attacks. Like they were on the news constantly. Oh my God, there's all these shark attacks. What are we gonna do about these shark attacks? Who's to blame for these shark attacks? What are we gonna do to stop all these shark attacks? Uh, To the extent that Time Magazine actually put a shark on the front cover of their magazine and declared this the summer of the shark. So 2001 was the summer of the shark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, um, and if you get nothing else from this presentation, you'll learn a new word that you can use at your next cocktail party, which is galeophobia, which is the fear of sharks. So there was a, there was a, a huge spike in galeophobia in the summer of 2001. The reality, though, is that shark attacks are extremely uncommon, and actually the summer of 2001 was no different from any other summer as far as shark attacks go. And excuse me, so I have to kind of look at this this particular slide. So the chances of a swimmer being hit by a shark is only one in more than 11 million, so extremely, extremely rare. 
there's only about 70 shark attacks per year worldwide. So that's for all of the people, all the millions or billions of people that go into the water. There's only about 70 shark attacks. And of those, only about three to four of them are fatal. And then uh, this last bullet, which is sort of amusing, is that vending machines kill more people per year than shark attacks and snakes combined. <clears throat> and what I mean by vending machines is like you put your dollar in the vending machine and your Twix doesn't come out, and so you shake the vending machine and it falls on you and kills you. So that's, that's, actually, that's actually more common than a shark attack. <laughs> Jonathan showed us a video that we've linked to in the show notes. The crux of the story was that the hype around the year of the shark was just that, hype. The media turned a couple of attacks into big news story, and that caused people to have a hysterical reaction. And it's all based on the availability bias, one of the most prevalent principles in behavioral science. Yeah, many people ask, what is behavioral science? And that question was posed to Jonathan, so he addressed it. There's a few frameworks that we can use to talk about how the mind works and this whole field of behavioral economics, which is essentially a study about our irrational mind. So we have kind of a view of the world that we think rationally, and when, be, when faced with a decision, we're going to make a rational decision about it. Behavioral economics is essentially looking at the mind as, as fundamentally irrational and takes a lot of shortcuts. And those shortcuts can actually be studied and predicted. So one of the ways that we can think about that from a framework is this theory called the rider and the elephant, which was described by Jonathan Haidt. The elephant and the rider is a great model for thinking about how humans behave. You know, Jonathan points out the concept has its origins in the writings of Buddha and speaks to the way humans have a rational, thoughtful self, you know, the rider, and an irrational, emotional self, the elephant. If the elephant wants to go somewhere to do something, it's going to do it, regardless of what the rider wants. He goes on to give us an example of how big a role the elephant plays in our lives as he asks us to imagine a street scene. Let's listen. So let's, let's, um, let's do a little uh, um, thought exercise about the, the way this works. Let's imagine that um, <clears throat> you're leaving work and it's dark and you're, you step outside and you walk onto kind of a dangerous looking street. I don't know, maybe even the street out here is kind of, kind of a little rough looking here and <laughs> right outside here. So imagine that you walk outside and you, you know, your kind, of, kind of senses start tingling. You, there's some sort of danger that you're sensing. And um, you know, there's just something isn't right and, you f and it's dark and it's a little scary. And imagine you come across a person on the street. Jonathan showed us three images of men's faces. There were two fairly gentle-looking older gentlemen and one fairly rough-looking guy. He asked how we might feel if we saw each of these men on a dark street, and more importantly, what we might do when we saw each of them. And it's complicated. Most likely, your first intuition was, I'm going to avoid that guy on the right because he's a little sketchy looking and you know I'm not sure what's going on with him but you know to be safe I'm going to cross over to the other side of the street if I see that guy then so that would be that would be your elephant talking to you that would be the elephant making the split second decision like this guy is kind of dangerous I'm going to you know cross over to the other side of the street 
then, you know, you know, because I'm asking you this question, your writer might have kicked in, and your writer, you know, takes a little while to process, but you might have been like, oh, well, maybe this is a trick question, and like, why is he asking me that? So now I'm gonna look for a reason why I don't wanna, you know, avoid this guy, but these other two guys are maybe the dangerous ones, like maybe they're secretly psychotic or something like that. Reality that none of these people are dangerous. So, so this is Daniel Kahneman, one of the founders of behavioral economics. This is Richard Thaler, another Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics. And that's my friend Steve, <laughs> who, <laughs> who, who would actually be really pissed at me for showing this terrible picture of him. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's, he's actually a real sweetheart, and it was just this terrible picture I happened to, to take of him, but makes him look really sketchy. So why, why, does our, why does our mind act that way? So um, yes, the, you know, this whole rider and elephant thing and this powerful elephant can lead us to make irrational decisions, but it's part of the reason that we've survived as a species because it enables our mind to make these split-second decisions when necessary. So if you could think back to like in cavemen days, if we had to deliberate every little decision that came up, we might not survive. So, you know, if you look at this picture here, there's some ancient hunter-gatherers that are being pursued by this huge beast with, with horns. <clears throat> and so if they didn't have this elephant thing that, you know, had this spidey sense that, like, kicked in immediately is like, ah, there's this dangerous thing, I'm gonna run away immediately without thinking about it, but instead it had to deliberate it, and it was like, well, let's see, this thing outweighs me by about four times, and it's got sharp things sticking out, and it looks a little dangerous, and by the time it calculated, the, you know, the person calculated that, they'd be trampled and, and killed. So that's what helps us survive as our species. The mind is a terribly complicated thing, and our motivations are even trickier to isolate and identify. But we can see that having both an elephant to react quickly and a writer to help us reason are both good things. Kurt, are there any examples you can speak to when both the writer and the elephant were engaged? So think of a time when you're in a meeting and somebody has the bowl of apples on the table, but then somebody else brings in these really delicious looking donuts. Yeah, I can think of that. And you're hungry. And I'm, so, I'm there. And so do you pick that apple, which is the rational thing because you're watching your weight and want to eat healthy? Or do you take that mouth-watering frosted donut and take it and bite into pure luxurious heaven? That is the elephant having you pick the donut. You're, you're selling me on the elephant here. <laughs> <laughs> the elephant is pretty strong. When the elephant Very. wants to go and get a donut, the elephant's going to go and get a donut. Really hard for that rider to pull back the elephant and say, wait, yes, I'm hungry. Either I won't eat anything or let's eat that healthy apple instead. And so that's that rider and elephant component. And Jonathan talks about how the field of user experience can benefit from some of the ways marketers use behavioral science to get people to move from I can to I will. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm in the field of UX design and I'm fascinated by the possibilities of bringing this 
um, this field of behavioral economics into the realm of UX design. So UX designers have a superpower. So UX designers are amazing at making sure that people can do something. So UX designers make sure that people can comprehend things, that they can find things, that they can browse, they can interact, they can complete tasks. So it's all about the can of, of doing something. But what I've been fascinated with for a long time is another question is will I do something? So will I, you know, will I have the motivation to do something? Will I be able to change somebody's behavior? Will I be able to uh, change their attitude about something? And the field of UX design maybe sort of touches on it, but it really is not the basis of UX design. UX design sort of assumes that you've already made the decision to complete a task, and UX designers excel at helping you complete that task. But the question about will you complete the task, or will you start the task, tends to be more in the realm of marketing. And I feel like UX designers can um, take a lot of this, what is traditionally maybe in the field of marketing and some other fields, and apply it to our field. So let's think about how we could potentially do some of that. Here, Jonathan teed up a couple of images of products with prices. One image with the price close to the product, and the other image had the price at a distance from the product. He asked which is a more powerful image to get people to buy. He noted that the visual designers in the room were likely to choose the image with the price close to the product, but the other image drives more sales. You know, until this, Kurt, I had no idea the distance between product and price could have such a positive and powerful effect. It can. It was studied by your old colleague Patricia Norberg at Quinnipiac University, and the results are very robust. It's called the discount distance congruency effect. Yeah, say, say that five times fast. Dare you to. <laughs> yeah. But let's hear Jonathan explain it. What this, what this discount di distance congruency effect is saying is that when we're making comparisons, we, we, we include things that are relevant, you know, such as the price difference, so $11 versus $9, but then we also include things like the space in between the numbers. And so the space in between the numbers is more for the one, you know, now it's on the top. And so that becomes more of a discount in our mind and for, for some weird reason. So it doesn't make any sense, but this was studied with a bunch of people and it was actually shown over and over again to be more effective. So there's an example, if you're a UX designer, how you could potentially bring the field of behavioral economics into fold. So if you're trying to maximize conversion, don't only think about the layout, which some of you are saying like the layout was actually best with, with the most effective one anyway, but um, there's this other thing like the discount distance congruency effect. So something as small as the space between the price and the product can influence purchase decisions. Okay, how about which side of the coffee cup the handle appears on? Could that matter? Definitely. In the next example, Jonathan showed an image of a coffee cup with the handle on the left side of the cup, and another image with the same cup, but with the handle on the right side. So it's the visual depiction effect is what's at play here. And it sounds like some of you have already figured that one out. So. So in addition to, again, what's visually pleasing, um, 
it's much more compelling to people if they can kind of picture themselves using the thing that they're looking at. So um, I actually happen to be left-handed, but I'm in the minority, so I would prefer this one because I can picture myself picking this one up. But the, the majority of you that are right-handed would prefer that one, and most likely that would be the better one to go with because you'd have better conversion because more people would picture themselves picking up the mug that way. Then he offered examples of prices with the numbers extending into decimal places for some and no decimal places for others. The very presence of commas separating thousands and the decimal places demonstrated a longer price which the viewer's elephant literally reads in our minds as being more expensive. And part of the reason is, is that it looks just bigger. Um, so, you know, that's, that's maybe part of it. But there's actually a fascinating principle that I had never heard of until I started studying behavioral economics, which is called the auditory encoding price perception effect. So the auditory encoding price perception effect, which is making, this beer is making it hard for me to say that, <laughs> um, says that we verbally encode written numbers and that affects a perception of how expensive it is. So it's not so much that it's a bigger number to your eye, it's a bigger number to your ear. So you actually kind of say it to yourself and it just sounds like more money because instead of saying $1,199, you say $1,199.00 and that just sort of sounds more expensive. So same outcome than from what we're thinking of it looking bigger, but it's actually because of the way we say it rather than the way we see it. Jonathan's last example was that of a grocery shopping website. We all want to make healthy choices about the food we purchase, but we also have an elephant knocking on our door all of the time. Yeah, I've read that when people shop for groceries when they're hungry, they buy more high-fat foods to satisfy their hunger. Hmm. That's because we have a bias about satisfying our present selves more than we want to satisfy our future selves. Everybody says they'll start their diet tomorrow, but when tomorrow comes, we're pretty bad at getting started because it's today <laughs> and tomorrow I'll start again. So what if we could help people make a commitment to have healthy food in their shopping cart on their next visit rather than today? Jonathan describes a situation where people can overcome their present bias by making a commitment to buying healthy food on their next visit. It's a lot like Shlomo Benarzi's Save More Tomorrow model to help people increase the savings in their 401k by committing to increases that take effect next year. Instead of encouraging them to buy the broccoli right now, encourage them to buy the broccoli and have it delivered tomorrow. And they're actually be more likely to do it because then they're thinking about their idealized self instead of their self that's craving the potato chips right now. And there's, there's also some financial sites that take advantage of that too, financial sites that try to um, encourage you to save. So like, like save tomorrow rather than, rather than like put $100 in your account now, will you commit to doing like $50 a week starting next week? And you're probably more likely to get people to commit to it because of this present bias that sort of idealizes yourself in the future. Then we switched gears and Jonathan shared some stories from his work at PayPal. 
He set up the next study with some background, and he comes back to the importance of engaging both the rider and the elephant when it comes to making decisions. My job, uh, I guess it's been about two and a half years ago when I left PayPal. So how many people have a PayPal account? All of you, awesome. Or I think all of you, but most of you. And if, if you don't have PayPal, do you have Venmo? Because it's actually the same company, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> PayPal, PayPal doesn't make it very, yeah, so PayPal doesn't even make, make it obvious. It's sort of like Instagram and Facebook, you know, so, yeah, so. Um, anyway, so of the you that have a PayPal account, how many of you have linked your bank account to your PayPal account? Most of you, actually. So that was either designed by me or that experience was either designed by me or one of the folks on my team. So hopefully you found the process of doing it okay. It's actually one of the more complex things that you can do with your PayPal account. So it was a very difficult thing to design. <clears throat> but um, PayPal wants you to link a bank account for a lot of reasons. So it's actually both beneficial to the customer and it's beneficial to PayPal. So for the customer, it opens up the path to a lot of products and services that you wouldn't normally have. Um, the, one of the most compelling ones and the, re the reason that most people do it is that it lets you send money uh, to people for free. And it also lets you, once you receive money, it has, you have a bank account to deposit the money into. And then for PayPal, Customers who link the bank are um, shown to have much higher engagement, and they're about two times as more, yes, two times more valuable than than people that have not linked a bank account. So, um, PayPal invests a lot into trying to get people to do this action, and so. Me as a UX designer, I spent a lot of time, remember if that slide about can versus will. <clears throat> so I spent a lot of time making sure that people can do that action. And um, we did numerous iterations of it and we really drove conversion through the roof for the can part of it. But there was this resistance to actually taking the action. And so <clears throat> the owners of who will do the can part of it was typically our marketing team. And they tried all sorts of messaging strategies, all sorts of value prop messaging to try to get people to take this action. So you can see there's all these facts about, about linking a bank account. You avoid credit card fees, stay in control of your money, get access to pay after delivery. I won't go through all of them, but we tried literally dozens of these in, in A-B tests and none of them were effective. And the reason that they weren't effective is because all of these were just facts. And all of these were talking to the rider, right? If you think about the framework of the rider and the elephant. So the rider is only gonna have limited control over the direction that, that this rider elephant team is gonna go in. And so if you really wanna be effective, you need to talk to the elephant. Um, so I, you know, I didn't know anything about this at the time, and I was looking at this whole thing with frustration because you know, I really wanted people to start this flow that I had spent so much time uh, perfecting and you know, getting so that it was optimized so that people could do it, but there were quite a few people that just never started that action. So how do I get people to start this action? So I happened to read this article, I can't remember where it was, and it might have been like New Yorker magazine, about this thing about 
Robert Cialdini did this experiment to try to get people to reuse their towels in the bathroom. And I'm sure you know, all of you that have stayed in a hotel have seen the sign that they put up in the bathroom. You know, think about the environment, uh, whatever it is, you know, use less water. Um, and what they want to do is get you to reuse the towel that's, that's in the bathroom. And Robert Cialdini um, happens to be a professor at Arizona State University where I used to live. Ah, Bob Cialdini. One of our favorite episodes was when we got to talk to Bob. Yeah, I think it was even more fun than just hanging out with him when we were in New York together. Agreed. Cialdini's work on priming is legendary, and his work on how to demonstrate social proof through simple things like consistency and similarity are now staples of marketers everywhere. Jonathan shared how getting hotel guests to reuse towels was a lot like his task at PayPal trying to get customers to link to their own bank accounts. He also spoke to this process to track down Bob and engage him in his study. <clears throat> you may have noticed that hotels often place a small card in bathrooms that attempt to persuade guests to reuse their towels and linen. Most do this by drawing a guest's attention to the benefits that reuse can have on environmental protection. It turns out that this is a pretty effective strategy, leading to around 35% compliance. But could there be an even more effective way? Well, it turns out that about 75% of people who check into a hotel for four nights or longer will reuse their towels at some point during their stay. So what would happen if we took a lesson from the principle of consensus and simply included that information on the cards and said that 75% of our guests reuse their towels at some time during their stay? So please do so as well. It turns out that when we do this, towel reuse rises by 26%. Now imagine the next time you stay in a hotel, you saw one of these signs. You picked it up and you read the following message. 75% of people who have stayed in this room have reused their towel. What would you think? Well, here's what you might think. I hope they're not the same towels. <laughs> and like most people, you probably think that this sign will have no influence on your behavior whatsoever. But it turns out that changing just a few words on a sign to honestly point out what comparable previous guests have done was the single most effective message, leading to a 33% increase in reuse. So. The science is telling us that rather than relying on our own ability to persuade others, we can point to what many others are already doing, especially many similar others. So, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, I, I read about this study and I was fascinated by it, <clears throat> not just because it was a fascinating study, but I sort of made this leap as like, you know, this thing that Bob Cialdini did with the towels is sort of similar to what I'm trying to do with getting people to link a PayPal, link a bank account to their PayPal account. Because both of them involve like a small amount of effort. And both of them sort of seemingly are a little bit more about the company than it is about the customer, right? Like it's, you know, maybe it's like, you know, well, why are you trying to get me to link a bank account? Like what is it, what's in it for you? And same thing with the towel thing is like, what's in it for you, hotel? Why are you trying to bug me about that? I'm just gonna drop it on the floor. Um, so, 
you know, I was really intrigued by the results that they got from this. And, uh, and by the way, you, you heard them talk about this word called consensus. So that's more commonly known as the concept of social proof. And I'm sure many of you have heard the term social proof. So Bob Cialdini coined the term social proof. And it was actually, this was a while ago, and it was the first time I had ever heard about that, like sort of described in a methodolo methodological way. Oh, the beer really got to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know the word I'm trying to say. Um, so, so as I mentioned, you know, I, I used to be based in Arizona, and, and Cialdini was at the, the uh, Arizona State University. So I kind of just looked him up on the university website, and I sent him an email, and I invited him to go out to lunch to me. Um, and to my surprise and delight, he wrote me back right away, and he accepted, and we went out to lunch. And so I told him about what I was trying to do at PayPal, and I told him about the fact that I had read about his experiment you know, with social proof, about with the towels, and you know, did he think that there was anything to um, my theory that it could be potentially effective to use social proof with trying to get PayPal customers to link their bank account, and he thought it was. And he was probably also very interested in the fact of working with me because he normally kind of pulls aside you know, maybe 12 grad students to do his experiments, and now he has potentially access to tens of millions of people to do an experiment. It doesn't seem like much, but it actually took us a few months of iterations and going through various channels to write this message, which is join over 30 million customers who have verified status. And uh, verified is actually not used anymore at PayPal, but it, so it's, 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 but it basically implies that you've linked a bank account. And one of the ways to get verified is by linking a bank account. So we put this out and we made sure that this number was actually correct, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, about making sure that number is correct. Um, <clears throat> the marketing team heard about the fact that we were doing this whole thing, and we felt, they felt that we, that we were treading in their territory. So they came out with this. I'm not sure if you could see that, but it says, 30 million people are doing it. Shouldn't you? <laughs> Do you see anything wrong with that ad? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> for the, this did not get published <laughs> because when I saw that, I was aghast that <laughs> they would try that. So, for those of you that aren't seeing it, you know, there's sort of an attractive couple very close together and a message saying, like, 30 million people are doing it, shouldn't you? So, we declined to use that. <laughs> um, so, this is, this is, um, it doesn't look like much, and this, this has been long been uh, changed. This is, this is probably circa 2014, 15 at PayPal. But this is the consumer onboarding flow. This is where you set up a new um, PayPal account. And part of the old flow basically asked you, uh, in the process of setting up your account, did you want to link a bank account or did you want to link a credit card to your account? And um, we would actually greatly prefer that you linked a bank account rather than a credit card, but we couldn't overtly push you towards that. Um, so this is where, you probably can't see it, this is where we snuck in that magic message from Robert Cialdini's consultant. So there's a, there's a fact on the top, no limit on how much money you can send. There's a fact on the bottom, industry-leading safeguards to keep your money and information secure. 
But then there's social proof right in the middle that says join over 30 million users who have verified status. And then we also put it here when you start to actually take the step of linking your bank account. So we did another, uh, another A-B test and let's see how we did. So the results were this. Um, so this actually might take a little bit of interpretation. So there's a concept at PayPal. So this is giving you a little bit of a window to the secret sauce of PayPal. There's a concept of PayPal called funding mix. And funding mix is essentially for every payment we look at what funding instrument did the customer use. So did they use cash? Did they use their bank account? Did they use a debit card? Did they use a credit card? Did they use PayPal credit? And the lower the number, the better because the lower the number means the fewer credit card transactions there were. And so, as you can see, we did a test with a bunch of other messages, and the one with social proof had by far the best funding mix. So that means the people that were exposed to this message used their bank account in subsequent transactions. And I forgot to mention that we, we tracked these users that were exposed to this message for six months afterwards. So it wasn't just what was the conversion, it was also what was the conversion and then what was the subsequent behavior. So, which is far more important because you know, it's one thing to link a bank account, it's another thing to actually use it for transactions. The changes Cialdini and his team offered had a tremendous effect, and here Jonathan reveals the remarkable results he and his team at PayPal obtained. So based on the fact that we had such an improved funding mix with the people that were exposed to that message, just from changing the messaging, we had a $2.2 million per year bottom line margin improvement in, um, in all transactions. So, and the benefit of it was because this was an onboarding flow, so these were new users, and then every year we would do that again, so it would be 2.2 million the first time we put that out, then another 2.2 million after that, et cetera, and it just compounded after that. So amazingly financially successful just from kind of sticking in that one line of text into the onboarding flow. This is remarkable. It's the power of behavioral science, Tim. <laughs> one line of copy in an ad can make a huge difference. Jonathan closed with a couple of important reminders. Let's listen. You know, if you're, if you're designing a flow and you're a UX designer, a thing to keep in your mind is that if there is a decision to be made in this flow, um, the elephant will probably decide. So in other words, the rational part of your mind may not be the thing that's taking over. And if there's gonna be a decision, you need to think about the irrational part of somebody's mind. Um, just as importantly, it's, it's important to, to, to think about the fact that the elephant makes fast decisions and those decisions are effortless. So essentially the elephant doesn't really get tired. You can have all sorts of decisions in front of the elephant and it's just gonna decide, 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 decide because it's not really thinking and it's not really putting in any, any effort. It's doing all these mental shortcuts. If you force people to use the rational part of their mind, they're going to expend effort and it's actually going to be physically draining on them. And the more times you make people think, there's that famous book by, uh, by Krug, you know, Don't Make Me Think, which is you know, a classic UX book. Um, I don't think he talks about this, but the more you make people think, the more they're going to get tired and the more you're going to risk they're just gonna drop off and not do the flow in the first place. <clears throat>
And then I say this sort of jestingly, but it's actually an important consideration. The elephant won't fit in a usability lab. So what I mean by that, like literally it won't fit in the usability lab, but what I mean by that is if you're doing user testing and you're testing things like you know, usability and comprehension and things like that, those are ideal things for the rider. Those are ideal things for the can part of that equation, but you cannot sit somebody into, in a usability lab and see what they will do in real life so for that, you kind of have to put them, you have to, you have to be instrumented and you have to do these A-B tests so that you could see, you know, an experiment and see what, thing, what messages and whatever other behavioral economics interventions you're doing are more effective. Kurt, so what are you taking away from Jonathan's comments? A couple of different things. So one, we have to take into context the elephant and the rider. Both are important and sometimes we need the elephant to move us, and sometimes we really need that rider to restrain the elephant. Second, small changes can have a huge difference, which leads to the fact that companies really need to invest in A-B testing or some sort of testing to really get it right. How about you, Tim? What are you going to take away? You know, it's impressive that companies like PayPal are not only paying attention to the applications of behavioral science, but they're also exhibiting some care for doing it ethically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked at length about the power of these principles, Kurt. And when they get applied uh, to these situations, uh, marketing and HR professionals face big ethical issues from time to time. And it's cool to see that some companies are really doing it right. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece. We have grooved on the ethics of behavioral science many, many times in the past. It is a powerful tool that can be used for good, but in the wrong hands or even just being used without really thinking through all of the consequences. The ethical implications for that can be really, really impactful. And it's good to hear that companies are doing some really thoughtful things around making sure that they're ethical. So with all of these factors having such powerful effects, do you think that the music that's being played in a, in a retail environment could be having a, a significant effect on our behaviors? We know it is, right? We've seen those studies where in the wine shop, when they play German music, more German wines are sold. And when they switch to French music, more French wines are sold. We know that those background noises and music impact how we you know, think they're priming our brain. And there's a lot of those components that we don't pay attention to. The pictures on the walls, those words as you come in, all of those different factors play into how we respond. It's all about context. It's all about how our brains interpret things based on the things they've seen prior to what we have just doing. I understand that that our brains are taking in every 300 milliseconds, about 11 million data points. How many? 11 million data points. And yet they're only processing, our brain is actually only processing about 40. I, I'm processing maybe five. 
<laughs> I can tell you that for a damn fact. And if there's 11 million pieces of data coming in. There's a lot that's being missed. <laughs> there's a lot that is being missed, man. That's but right. So it's it's really important, though, when we think about that, right? So we that kind of helps in understanding how that priming effect works. Exactly. Because now what we're doing by the priming, by having the music in the background or those words up on the wall or whatever it is that is priming us, we're activating these neural networks that take those 11 million bits of information and act as filters. And because we're, we've primed some of these neural networks, we're more likely to focus in on these set of 40 items as opposed to those set of 40 items. Which is where biases and heuristics come into play. Exactly. Yeah. So what music would you listen to if you had to go into a retail shop? Well, I, I would like it to be uh, associated with the shop. Okay. You know, I was, in a, I was in a shop recently that was really cool and modern and very contemporary in the layout and the collection of, of products they had was super eclectic. And, uh, and they were playing like uh, just garbagey kind of uh, Muzak kind of stuff. It was just junk. And I thought, this is so out of character. Like, this does not make sense to me. In, in my, my mind, in the world of trying to make a reasonable sense out of this, I couldn't make any sense out of it. And it pissed me off. <laughs> so what kind of music would have worked in that situation? Oh, let's see. In, in that super contemporary, I think I would have gone with something electronica, EDM. You know, get some get some EDM music with some thumping and some, some thumping cool, beats and yeah. some some you cool know, sounds. You yeah, know, some good bass synths. in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, yeah. all right. And, and you, what what uh, what would you like to be listening to? What would you like to prime yourself with today, musically? Oh, prime myself with today, musically. Yeah. That's hmm. I think I would go with "People Are People" by Depeche Mode. Because it's always just a good, common, great way of thinking. You know, people are people. And why should it be that you and I get along so awfully? (laughs) That's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Would would you want to have that uh, playing across the state as you walk across the stage to receive the Nobel Prize? Would that be your your Nobel Prize winning music? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> we'll 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 never know because I will never be walking across that stage for a Nobel Prize yeah, we, in any category uh, unless they had one for you know people that are stupid and I might win that no but well that's not fair you're you know there's a lot oh, of people I'm not as stupid as you is well, that what you're yeah, saying exactly you would win is we that? got a lot of competition for that one I, I don't think you can just take the cake on that one pal all right so with that listeners thank you hopefully you enjoyed this episode of Behavioral Grooves. A little different than our normal. We took a Behavioral Grooves meetup and put it together here and kind of mash some different things around. Let us know if you like that format. We're going to try to be doing more of these, uh, taking our meetups and actually having them be some of the podcasts. So let us know if that's enjoyable. If it's not, Make sure we know that so we don't do it and don't waste our time or yours. Amen. And if you did like this, please leave a comment. We greatly, greatly um, need that. It helps in Apple's ratings. And so if we really do want to expand the audience, uh, 
it's crazy how much Apple re- relates or responds to getting that information to be showing this up for people when they're searching for behavioral science or human condition or various different things. So any of those aspects, we would love you to rate and to leave a review. And with all that, listeners, thanks very much for hanging out with us. Mm-hmm.